0: Hey, this is Dan, and this is a single theme podcast that I am titling Why I've Had a Lifelong Love Affair with Money. If I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Well, I'd buy you a house I would buy you a house And if I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Buy you furniture for your house. Maybe a nice Chesterfield or an Ottoman. And if I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you a K car. A nice, reliant. Well, hey, I probably got some of you squirming already when we're going to talk about loving money. I'll tell you what, I want to address two different issues today. What is your mindset? about money? Get a lot of questions that really ultimately come back to that. What is your mindset about money? And then I want to talk about how do you address your upper limit challenge? I'll tell you what that is as we go through this content. Now, I got a note from James who says, a couple of weeks ago, you read a letter from Ray who said, I only accept the success I feel I deserve. And ask for suggestions on how to change his mindset to one where he feels he's deserving of success. And James goes on, that question really resonated with me. I bought a copy of The Millionaire Mind. I'm reading it right now. I'd love it if you do a podcast on this topic. Well, this is one that comes up again and again and again. How do we have a mindset about money so that it's healthy, so that it's not greedy, but that we have opportunity to help others. I mean, there's a whole lot of issues that relate around our mindset about money. Now I decided a long time ago, I decided as a lot of kid, as a little kid that I was going to enjoy money that I wanted to have plenty of it, but it was really counter to a lot of things I was being taught in that environment. But here's, here's how I feel about money. I love money and money loves me. Now, I, I like to personify money so that it seems like a real thing, not just paper, but it's something real, tangible. I mean, Gally, you know, when you reach out in your pocket and you feel those coins or you feel that bunch of money that you got folded over in a money clip, I enjoy that. I mean, one And One of the things that I did when I went through a really tough time a few years ago, and I've talked about that where I was deeply, deeply in debt. I started carrying a $100 bill in my wallet at all times. Always, always. You can ask me anytime you meet me to show you a $100 bill, and I'm gonna have one tucked away just in one of the compartments of my wallet. Not one that I just spend, just one that I have. So I always have that. Now, a lot of times over the years, I've simply given it to somebody who I was thrilled to be in a position to be able to do that. So I've given a lot of those away, but then I replace it immediately. I keep some here in my office so I can always replace that, always have it with me. There's just something about having that where I never feel broke. You know, broke is such a state of mind. So I never feel broke because I always have at least that $100 bill in my pocket. But I expect more money to be coming my way. I open my arms to money. I allow money to reach me with ease and gratitude, relief. And I want money to know that when she comes to me, I'm going to treat her really, really well. Now, how do you think that compares to people who are complaining, blaming, resisting, pretending they don't want, need, and love money, when in fact they all actually do? You know, of course they do. Money knows that I want, need, and love her. My hands are open. I'm grateful. I am thrilled to have the opportunity to live the life that i live you know with lots of adventures travel play memory making and again i'm not talking about extravagant spending that's not at all but knowing that i have the resources to do those kind of things is a wonderful position to be in now here's some things that'll kind of help us unpack this you know i'm a car guy you know i love to just buy cars and flip cars i've always had fun doing that enjoy them so i bought a lot of repossessed cars over the years go to bank auctions and there are public auctions like here in nashville that you can go to and they have repossessed cars you know without exception when i get a repo car i can start going through the floorboard in a center console in a trunk and i find money i find pennies dimes nickels quarters everywhere It just seems uncanny. I mean, I've, I've joked about it with Joanne. When, when I buy a repo car, I'll probably collect 10 bucks just in change. That's right. Now, what does that tell me? That lets me know how the previous owner took care of money and it's clear what the end result was. It just, if somebody doesn't take care of money well, it's going to slip through their hands and you're not going to be somebody that money is drawn to. And I'm the kind of guy, you know, if there's a penny in the parking lot, man, I'll walk 20 feet out of my way to go pick it up. And I'm especially happy if it's heads up. You know, I know a lot of kids today could care less, you know, a penny, they kick it or whatever, just walk by. Nah, I'm still the guy that I bend over and pick it up. It's a penny. It's real money. I just do that. Now, we know we talk a lot about you succeed in business when people know you, trust you and like you. What about money? Does it know, trust, and like you? If you complain about it all the time, it probably looks for ways to avoid you. I mean, I hear a lot of millennials today talking about, you know, we need to break the economic system. Capitalism is, you know, a bad thing. We need to do away with it. You know, we need to just, I guess, have socialism where we just evenly divide the money between all the people. Well, that doesn't work. I mean, time after time, history has proven that doesn't work. The only thing that works is allowing people the opportunity to earn. And I don't care if you call it capitalism or something else, but I mean, it doesn't matter if we don't have money, we're going to have some kind of an economic system. As soon as I figure out that you have something I want, I have something you want. We may exchange a potato for a tomato. I don't care, but it's some kind of an economic exchange. And we build on that right now. I don't know of a better process than having money because it allows us a lot of unique changes i can get a tomato from you and then i can go get eggs from somebody else even if you don't have them because i have money now to exchange for the eggs that i want so that's all it is it's just a a reasonable tool by which we can make those kind of transactions okay now i know i've already got a lot of you probably more than curious and already defensive Because you grew up in a theological system like I did, where you were taught in church that the love of money is the root of all evil. Okay, now that comes out of 1 Timothy 6.10. But you know what it really says in the newer translations, like the New International Version or the New King James, it says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's what it says. The love of money is a root of all evil. So in the same way, we could say that bricks are used to smash a lot of windows by vandals. So let's totally do away with bricks. Well, that's ludicrous. Bricks are used to make houses for people who need them. Bricks are used to make cathedrals it just happens to be the same tool that is used by vandals if they want to smash a window. I mean, we could say ski masks are the primary component of all bank robberies. Well, we know that would be ludicrous. Ski masks, keep your face warm when you're going down a hill in the middle of winter. You know, so to say that the love of money is the cause of all evil immediately puts us under defensive makes of adverse to having money. So is that a reasonable position? Okay, let's not have money. I mean, the, the safest thing to do is to not have money. Money opens the door to a lot of danger. So the safest thing to do, probably the most godly thing to do, is to not have any money. You really believe that? I mean, so we go to church and they teach us to hate money, to be suspicious of having any And I recognize that people who have money are often greedy, likely to take from the poor, to increase their own coffers. Well, personally, I have not found that to be true. I find that people who have a lot of money are the most gracious, generous, giving people on the face of the earth. It's the people who don't have any money, who are greedy, who will steal, take from each other just because they think, you know, ownership then is possession. But people who have a lot see it as a resource that can be replenished over and over and over again. So here's the deal. So we go to church. They teach us to hate money, to be suspicious of having any. And then the church turns around and starts a $20 million building fund to put up a new sanctuary and immediately look for people who could give a million dollars. And they expect everyone to give sacrificially. I mean, I was part of a church where we did exactly that wanted to have this extravagant new building, escalators, coffee house, all that. They immediately looked for who could we tap that will give a million dollars. And we found a couple people who did in fact that. Is the point then to be in a position where giving $100 a month is a stretch or to be in a position where giving $10,000 a month would be possible? Which would you rather be, which would... Fulfill the mission of the work that you're committed to, even at your church, better if you have a lot of money or if you have none? Well, it's a pretty easy answer, but we get this mixed message, it seems, a lot of times from churches in terms of our relationship with money. Couple, I, I grabbed a couple quotations as I was going through this. Pablo Picasso said, I'd like to live as a poor man with lots of money. Upon what the, From Will Rogers, this is from years and years ago, and it was kind of funny in light of recent events in our country. He said, a fool in his money will soon be elected. (laughs) Well, Will Smith says, money and success don't change people. They merely amplify what is already there. And in a similar note, Warren Buffett says, of the billionaires I've known, money just brings out the basic traits in them. If they were jerks before they had money, they're simply jerks with a billion dollars. Now, here's another part of this i want to switch gears a little bit here we've been taught that the christian life is one of service putting others first you know ignoring our own needs emptying our own cup i mean the little song we sing joy joy you know i I, well i was almost broke into song but i won't do that i'll spare you from that but jesus first others next yourself last what if we had it wrong What if focusing totally on the person and their needs is what causes us to fail? Wait a minute, Dan. I mean, isn't it the moral response to be only concerned about the other? We want to know what the other is doing, thinking, wanting, having, demanding. And what what if the most loving, serving person is the one who looks after their own needs first? Ouch. How could we possibly justify that? we hear about forgetting yourself don't pay attention what your own desires are what your own needs are just do something that needs to be done well i work with people every day who have done exactly that they've ignored themselves they've just looked at what needed to be done even if it's godly or humanitarian and they end up burned out resentful that they're so they're struggling themselves so much they have nothing left to give And really, if we follow that train kind of down that path, you're going, if you don't love yourself, you can't really love anyone else. This is related to this issue of money, and I'm going to show you how. A lot of well-meaning people make the mistake of seeking love of self through love for others. They think if I can just love others, then they'll love me. Then I'll know I must be lovable. And I can love me too. So it's a long way around to thinking that you're okay yourself. Well, and this goes right into how do most Christians then serve? They deplete themselves. They give and give because the needs are so great. We hear again and again and again, you know, your giving ought to be sacrificial. So if you're making $100 a week, you know, give 50 if you, you know, so they exhaust the resources and become emotionally empty, having nothing left to give to those they care about the most. And a lot of times, you know, end up resenting those who are in need. So a lot of people are confused and frustrated as they're attempting to live out the expectations of others. But this is a distorted idea of service, and it's stripping people of having anything to give. I grew up, as I mentioned, as a pastor's son. So I I heard a lot about sacrifice and giving. But I also observed some really unhealthy teachings. Now, let's play this out a little bit. If you have a sandwich for lunch and you see someone who has nothing, you sacrifice to give him your sandwich. What if you do that every time you see someone else hungry? What if you give away all your food every time someone else has a need? Well, very quickly, you're going to die. You know, let me, let me expand on this a little bit. Let's imagine three different examples of how we can give. So just picture with me and I'll, I'll link to a video that I did. I've got a little seven minute video that kind of lays this out. I'll link to this in the show notes for today, but let's imagine that I have a small cup and I have a medium sized cup and a big cup. Okay. So we'll go with that. So in the small cup, I have a bottle of wine behind that. Now we have a lot of resources there, but I pour a little bit in and the small cup gets full really quickly. Now there's plenty of resources again, but there's just no room in this tiny cup. And with this tiny cup, you know, I feel like, golly, I'm working 60 hours a week. I really don't have time to consider, you know, other people are giving, i barely have enough to get by. Gee, there's really not enough to go around. And then something comes up. The car needs a new transmission. One of the kids needs to go to the dentist. Or maybe um, you decide we really want to help somebody out. There's a school in Haiti that we want to help, but the cup becomes depleted really quickly because it's very, very small. And when we start on Monday and by Wednesday, that cup is empty. There's just not enough there. Now, we know there's a lot of resources out there. We hear about that. We see it, but we just haven't figured out how to tap into them. Now, the antithesis of that is a really big cup. In the visual demonstration in the video, I use like a big trifle bowl. It's one of those great big glass bowls. So, yeah, we have access to a lot of resources, but we also have really big needs. I mean, wow, there's that vacation home that we just bought in Puerto Rico, and now we need gardeners and cleaning ladies to maintain it. There's that new Lamborghini I just got that I financed for 10 years, and the five-carat diamond I just got for Joanne. Now, you know, that's really too nice to wear in public. So I've got it in a bank vault when I, and I just pay a small monthly fee to protect it. And there's that sense of never having quite enough. When I just get enough in my own cup, you know, if I just keep using more resources enough that I know we could retire comfortably or we could finish paying off the last mortgage, then we'll be able to give and share with others. But I need to make sure we have plenty. Always being able to earn, make deals. So I keep maximizing my reserves. Well, like with a small cup, there's just never enough to go around. So I use all the resources that I have available and my cup is still just not quite full. Now, Obviously, there's a third choice. Remember Goldilocks and the Three Bears? Well, this is kind of like that. And here we can create an ideal scenario. So we have a goblet sitting on top of a saucer, which is really significant. The idea here, well, this comes from the Havdalah service in the Jewish tradition where on the Sabbath evening, the family is together and they do exactly what I'm describing here. They have a goblet sitting on top of a saucer. It's the only time in Jewish ceremony where a goblet is on top of a saucer. So the idea is, yes, I'm going to fill my own cup, but I know the resources are so plentiful that I'm going to have an abundance from which I can really share with others. So I pour that wine in until my cup is full and continue pouring. It overflows. And now I have an abundance from which I can share with other people. That's the ideal. Now, I'm not hungry. I'm not starving myself. I have my family needs met. The Bible is very clear about taking care of the needs of your own family first, but I still have an abundance from which we can share with other people. Well a lot of people spiritualize that small cup not having much and by golly being proud of it you know we're like the widow with two mites we gave everything and now we have nothing you know the ac unit isn't working in our house we got a flat tire in the car we don't even have money to fix that i mean is that a desirable position to be in i mean the two mites in the story of the widow who gave two mites the mite was the lowest value roman coins Together, those two mites would have been worth about just just to put it in contemporary terms, it would have been worth about twelve minutes of an average daily wage so I mean it's a really, really tiny amount of money. but we think, well, it's probably more godly to not have much, and to extend that it's most godly to have nothing coming from a scarcity mentality about money, you know that there's a fixed quantity of money it means Someone's going to have less if somebody has anything. Well, again, like I mentioned a little bit ago, if I have a sandwich and I give that to somebody who's in need, that sounds godly. That's a caring thing to do. What if I see somebody the next day as well? And then I see somebody at dinnertime and breakfast as well. What happens if I give all that I have to those who are desperately in need? Well, as godly as that sounds, I'm ultimately going to deplete myself and die. And I see a lot of well-meaning people who put themselves in that position. I mean, think about it. Even on an airplane, what are the instructions if there's a problem? Do they want you to take care of your children and those around you first? No. They clearly instruct us. Put the oxygen mask on yourself. There's no way you can help your children and other people if you don't protect yourself first. The principle is we have to have our own cup full before we can serve others well. So that's the thing. And with this demonstration the goblet we gently pour the wine in the cup showing symbolically we're going to go out in the workplace this coming week we're going to do the work we do with such excellence we're going to be able to fill our cup completely we're going to have all the resources we need for our family but you know what we're going to continue we don't just stop there that's another thing you know we can talk about retirement because the the model really is when i get enough just for myself i'm going to stop being productive wow what an unhealthy model that is So we're not going to stop when our own cup is full. We want an abundance from which we can serve other people. I want to keep being productive and that rich overflows for the needs of everyone else. When I've covered my mortgage payment, my groceries, car insurance, is that a time to just sit back and relax and enjoy the fact that I've met my own needs? Absolutely not. That's a time to push forward so then we can recognize, gee, a neighbor's in trouble needs rent to be paid. There's a young gal who just got out of prison, really needs a car to get back and forth to work. Or we got that school in Haiti that we want to help out. Absolutely. Or you may just decide you're going to pay for the next three cars back at Chick-fil-A. You know, they already, when you go through Chick-fil-A, they already have the bills totaled for the people who are behind you. You can do that easily. You can experience the joy of giving without feeling a sense of obligation or resentment, but it's from having a full cup a reservoir with an abundance from which we can give. Now, the question is then, how big is your cup? I mean, there's no set size for how big this cup should be. There's no dollar amount on the top of that goblet to say this much and no more. You get to decide how big your cup is. I mean, that's totally between you and God. I mean, you and your spouse decide that. But if your cup is so small that you always feel there's just not enough to go around, you're barely squeaking by, there's sure not enough to tithe or even help others beyond that, then maybe your cup is too small. If you get that sense, you're, just, you know, you're putting in 60, 70 hours a week, you don't have time to read good books, listen to podcasts, or spend time with those who are accomplishing you know, what you'd like to accomplish, maybe you need to take a fresh look at how you're using the talents God has given you to provide for yourself and others. Maybe you need a bigger cup. On the other hand, if you have a cup, like that great big trifle bowl, all the resources are being consumed just by you and your family over and over. There's never anything to share with others. And you're just obsessed with getting more for yourself. You know, maybe your cup's too big. Maybe you need to be content with a smaller cup. So that's what we want. We conceptually we want to have a cup that we can fill, filled overflowing because of our mindset about money, welcoming money in giving us this rich reservoir of abundance from which we can give generously in ways that enrich the lives of other people. Now there's one other concept that I want to touch on and it's called the upper limit challenge. You've heard me talk about that before. If you've listened to this podcast at all, it really is clarified in a little book called the big leap by Gay Hendricks. But here's, here's a little piece from that book. Each of us has an inner thermostat setting that determines how much love success and creativity we allow ourselves to enjoy when we exceed our inner thermostat setting we will often do something to sabotage ourselves causing us to drop back into the old familiar zone where we feel secure let me give you an example of how that plays out so we discover a kid down in a ghetto in alabama abject poverty my gosh this kid can play football We bring him out of that environment, bring him to Nashville, Tennessee, sign him with the Tennessee Titans, give him a $10 million signing bonus. You know what typically happens? Six months later, they've sabotaged their career, spent the money and more, and are back where they came from. Their sense of deserving doesn't match the reality of what they were given that quickly. And years ago, the church we were going to went together and gave a a car to a single mom and her son. Her son was probably 18 years old at the time anyway she was struggling i mean it was clear that they were having a hard time getting by had an old rattle trap car that kept breaking down we got them a brand new car it was a chevy cavalier station wagon i could still picture it blue within four months that car was dented on multiple sides broken glass wheel covers missing guess what they brought it down to a level that matched their sense of deserving. And Joanna and I have seen this happen time and time again. The young lady gets out of prison, we help them get a nice house, a car and a job. It's too much. They self-sabotage until their reality matches their sense of deserving. I could give you a whole lot of specific examples of how that's played out. But there are other examples of the upper limit challenge that each of us It may not be that big, that obvious. But here's some other signs of an upper limit challenge. Worry, blame, criticism, not keeping promises, defecting compliments. Here's here's something as well. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, things are going really well and they're just waiting for the other shoe to drop? I mean, I hear that all the time. It's that sense that things are too good. There's something that's going to happen that's going to sabotage the success I'm experiencing right now. I mean, parents call camp three times a day. Are my kids okay? You know, I, I'm worried about my kids getting hurt. Where does that come from? You know, here, here's one you just got your biggest speaking engagement. So you went through, you know, Kent Julian's speak it forward program. You're all fired up. You just got to speak in engagement. They're going to pay you $1,500. You fly to the city, stay at the hotel. You get up the next morning and you've got a horrible cold sinus infection or lost your voice. You know what? That's likely not a virus in the hotel room. It's an upper limit challenge. You're telling yourself at some level, you really don't deserve that. You're not ready for that. We see people a lot of times right on the precipice of massive success and they sabotage it in some way or another. When we talk about the traditional workplace today, people expect a three to 4% increase per year. Yeah, you can handle that. I mean, so if you're making $45,000, you know, this next year, you're going to make $50,000. Yeah, you, know, you can handle that. But what if you open the door to something you're doing something on Amazon or you came up with an invention or you uh, put together a course that you're going to promote online. And all of a sudden you have an opportunity to 10 times your income. So all of a sudden you have an opportunity to go from $45,000 to $450,000. And we see people sabotage that again and again and again. It's all there. All the lights are green. There's no obstacles, but somehow something sabotages that people who know they're in line for a promotion and all of a sudden three times this week they're late showing up to work upper limit challenge hey that's a beautiful dress oh this whole thing i got it at goodwill upper limit challenge deflecting compliments so it it negates them to more confidently identify with your sense of deserving I mean, it's a powerful concept, but if we can identify it, we can start to raise that upper limit. I mean, I've been working on mine for a lot of years now, but I used to get a pair of blue jeans for Christmas as my primary gift. So when I got to the point where I could get two pairs of blue jeans or three or have four nice shirts instead of one, it was like, wow, do I really need that? I mean, one of the things that I do when I was 17 years old, I took the money just a little meager savings account that i had as a kid and i took that money and went with a friend of mine to puerto rico flew down there and spent a week down there just playing my dad thought it was the stupidest thing he'd ever heard of in his life that i would take money and just do that i mean even when it comes to cars man i grew up with a car the only reason for a car is just to get you from point a to point b it's strictly utilitarian has nothing to do with personal enjoyment and certainly be very wary of something that you would be proud of that would draw attention. Well, I suspect at some level I'm still rebelling as a grown guy at this point with the kind of cars that I like to drive, but I've gotten over that particular barrier pretty well. But even even recently, here's something that I dealt with. We live in a house that's very adequate. I mean, Joanne and I love where we live. A lot of you have been here in our property, the sanctuary on one side, and then our house. You know, connected by a nature trail in between. So it's a perfectly good house. One of the things that drew us to the house originally was the kitchen. Beautiful kitchen, cathedral ceiling, open beams in there. But the countertop was tile, four inch tile that created a pattern. It was burgundy and white and had a flower pattern that ran through it. It was really beautiful, but it was extremely dated. It was really out of date, as was the floor, the backsplash, the cupboards, and so on. But it was purely functional. There was nothing wrong with it at all. My agreeing to update that was a challenge of mine. Not that we didn't have the money, but it's an upper limit challenge. Why would we destroy something that's perfectly good, even if the decor was 30 years old, to just make it? something that's really nice. Now, I don't take that lightly. I want to continue to struggle with those kind of things. I don't want to be frivolous about that. There was money there that could have been used for other things. I'm very, very aware of that. But a lot of times, you know, we come from family systems, you may as well, where a little bit of success is not really viewed very positively. You may feel like, if you are on a path to success and your siblings are not, they may view it as kind of breaking the family rules, breaking the family tradition. I'm very familiar with this space I'm talking about. A lot of you are experiencing that as well. Yeah, you know, you're probably doing something illegal to make that kind of money. And they kind of look down their nose at you. It's one of the reasons I talk so much about having a mastermind or having people around you who believe in your success and are Holding your arms up when you're weak, linking arms with you to share ideas and resources, keep you strong. Be around people who are performing at the level which you want to perform. Some people, because of their family systems, are saying, you know, I really, I, I can't let myself achieve my full success because if I did, it would outshine other family members and make them feel bad or look bad. I mean, I deal with this all the time. I had a client last year, only child. She was, uh, 40, let's see, 42 years old. Her parents had died recently, left her a multimillionaire, clearly property, assets, real estate, multimillionaire. She had really done nothing in her life at 42 years old, except care for her parents. They required that of her as an only child. And they questioned her ability, her talent to do anything more anyway. They convinced her that really was her only lot in life. She wasn't a candidate to do anything else. She had a master's degree in fine arts an MFA, but she continued. So there, they both have died. They both passed on. She continued to spite them by her underperforming. She was working in a minimum wage job, making $7 and 35 cents an hour as a substitute teacher. Now she wasn't held back by her ability or talent or any circumstances at that point, but by that overwhelming upper limit challenge that she really wasn't worth any more than where she was. Now in that situation, we worked through a lot of material. She did find another position and moved up a little bit, a little bit. I mean, I laid out possibilities for her to exponentially increase her success, and where she was, she wasn't ready for it. She got a job paying ten dollars an hour. I was mortified that she was content with that. She was thrilled that she had made that progress, and I had to accept the fact that that fit where she was at that particular time. Now maybe she can grow her own sense of deserving over time, but. It wasn't my place to just rip the top off of her upper limit challenge. So are you willing to find, develop and fully use your strongest talents and passions? Are you willing to do that? What is it that's holding you back? Is it the circumstances? Is it the environment? Is it the economy, the politicians, or is it something else? And make a note You know, if nothing else, I hope I've made you more aware of your own upper limit challenge, your upper limit behavior. If somebody pays you a compliment and you say, ah, nah, you know, I got this thing at a garage sale. No. What do you do when somebody gives you a compliment? say, thank you. I appreciate you. You know, the compliment. I appreciate you noticing. And go on. Even if you did pay 50 cents for it, pay attention to those things that may help you identify your upper limit challenge and pay attention to the things that express your feelings about money. I mean, are you the kind of person that attracts money or are you the kind of person that shoves it away because of your mentality? You complain about it, moan about it, hate it. Believe me, it's not going to force itself on you. If you want to be conduit if you want to be what it calls in the Old Testament blessed to be a blessing. You know, it's not intended that our talents and skills and abilities just make us fat and happy. No. I mean you don't want to be like a hose that has is capped off at the end. If it is, the water in there will get stagnant really quickly. Open the end of the hose so the water flows through. That's what you want your life to represent. So you are a vessel through which those blessings can flow to other people. Yes, fill your own cup. Fill that hose with fresh, clean, pure, life-giving water, but it's flowing through because you keep it moving through you. That's the model that we want to have. Hey, I hope this has been helpful. This is just one of those standalone themes. Golly, if you got ideas about things that you'd love to hear us talk about, I mean i love these kind of themes to unpack them obviously in these you're going to hear a lot of my particular opinion my particular perspective i hope if nothing else that it stimulates you refining your own you don't have to accept everything that i say but i hope it challenges you to take a new look at your own beliefs what are you doing in these areas that can serve you well and serve others around you well Well, hey, with that, I'm just going to wrap it up. I hope you are, in fact, having a wonderful week. I hope that you are a vessel through which those blessings can flow to other people. And again, I appreciate you being part of this growing community where we, in fact, are finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. We could just go up there and and hang out. Like open the fridge and stuff.